Good morning, everyone. As we turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us do just that. Let's read it together. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This morning's scripture reading is taken from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Again, the text is John 3, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord from the Gospel of John. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Thank you so much, Eric. Um, Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, truly believe that apart from your Holy Spirit that we cannot see. Father, as was just sung, uh, Holy Spirit, there are things that you and you alone can do. And as Eric just read, we, we believe that flesh only gives birth to flesh, that we cannot change ourselves. That, Father, whatever makeover we may make of our lives, uh, Lord, we simply cannot grow apart from you. Father, how readily we see it in the lives of others that we may try to change them. They may try to change themselves. But, Father, at the end of the day, Father, we are helpless. And so uh, we are so given to our fears, given over to our desires, our passions. Father, given over to uh, the, the crowd, the herd, Father, that uh, we um, cannot break the gravitational pull of the evil within us and the evil around us. And so we ask in your name to give us eyes that see and ears that hear, we pray in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the story I'm about to tell you is a story that is about me, but I do not know because I was three years old. My family and I, we were over at a house, um, the third of four we were over at a friend's house, and a friend, this is in Billings, Montana, when we were growing up, and my, apparently my parents' uh, friends had an indoor pool 
It was a n nice home, and uh, it was one of those pools that's enclosed. There's a heated pool. And my mom was uh, in the living room, I think, with my dad, and they were, all of them were talking and hanging out, laughing. And uh, she recalls that she says, we were talking with our friends, and suddenly I sat up and screamed, where is Bruce? And everyone just frantically jumped up and started looking. And somehow, uh, being true to my character, I'm a very impulsive and curious um, those of you kids who've read the book Curious George the Monkey, that was sort of epitomizes who I was. Somehow I had managed to open the door to the pool room and slip in. And not only did I slip in the room, but uh, being three years old, being curious about the pool, I slipped into the pool. And it was a heated pool. And what, what made the whole thing so miraculous, that being a heated pool, it had a cover on it. And I had slipped in and slipped underneath the cover. And miraculously, the, the man, the owner of the home, uh, ran out to the pool, uh, uncovered the part, began to uncover the pool, and the very part that he began to uncover on the corner, there I was under the water, and he was able to pull me out and resuscitate me. And it was amazing. They, they think that if I had been under there another minute or so, I probably wouldn't have made it. And it's amazing because you realize that, uh, in a sense, that it's a miracle. I mean, I can only say it this way, that God didn't want me to die yet. And as a pastor, I can tell you, I can give you stories of uh, little ones whose journeys proved to be measured in hours and in days and weeks and months. Uh, and the Lord has pilgrims who live 90 years, and he has pilgrims who live nine minutes and nine hours. And it's amazing, though, as we think about the gift of life, and that's what I want to talk about this morning we, in our series, Redeeming the Routine. We've been talking about the things that we do every day. And, of course, this morning I want to talk to you about the idea of breathing, something that we do, uh, as, um, as Jim mentioned earlier, some number of thousands of times a day, something that we do automatically without thinking. We breathe. And I want to suggest today, through Jesus' words, that our everyday life, in fact, our every single breath is, in fact, are you ready? It's a gift. That every breath we have, that all of life is a gift. And even more importantly, not only is everyday life a gift, but eternal life is a gift. Our life, our breath, whether everyday or eternal, is a gift, not a given. It's a gift, not a given. Let me say it this way. I can summarize everything I want to say is this, that life is a gift, and then we're gone. It's that simple. It's not a complex sermon. Life is a gift, and then we're gone. So what does that mean? It means that we are to give until we're gone. To give, and just like the one who gave it all, who gave out until he was gone. We'll talk about that. So let me first explain Jesus' terminology here. Some of Jesus' words in John 12, or John, excuse me, John 3, are, are actually quite um, unfamiliar, somewhat, somewhat mysterious to us. He uses two words especially that are, are again, are strange or mysterious to us. The words are flesh and spirit. Okay, now what, are, what, is it, what does he mean by flesh and spirit? Now, well, let me tell you what they're not. Okay, so often we may hear the words flesh and spirit, and we, we may think of a contrast of that which is physical, flesh, and that which is non-physical, spirit. And there's, there's a measure of truth to that, but that's really not what the contrast is about. The contrast is about something different. Well, what, what is it? What is that contrast? Well, let me ask you, 
Have you ever, let me ask a sober question, have you ever actually seen someone die? Have you seen someone pass, maybe a loved one, a grandparent, a parent, a spouse? Now to the naked eye, and I realize as you, as you scientists or uh, those of you in the medical field know, it's more complicated than this. But to the visible eye, what is the sign of death? that a person stops breathing, right? They stop breathing. And, and the notion of the spirit is the notion of life, the idea of animation, of motivation, of sort of, sort of a charisma. Spirit has to do with that which inspires, inspires. The spirit is going into someone and they're inspired, they're brought to life, they're animated, they're motivated. Spirit is that which motivates and brings life and movement. To be inspired is to get up and act, to start doing something. In contrast, that idea of spirit is the idea of flesh. Flesh is that which is inert, that which is inanimate. When we see someone pass, we say their spirit has moved on. There's no more breath, there's no more life, there's no more animation. All that is left is flesh, not in the sense of the physical body, although it's true, but flesh in the sense of that which is inert, that which is lifeless, that which must be acted upon. Those of you kids, you may be familiar with the story of Pinocchio, that flesh-spirit contrast is evident in this notion of a puppet that is flesh, that is just lifeless, it's just there, it's wood, until what? It's animated, it's brought to life in this, this, this character, this puppet actually in a sense becomes a person. So the contrast of flesh and spirit is the contrast, not of physical versus uh, somehow immaterial, or material versus immaterial, but a contrast of that which is lifeless or inanimate and that which animates, that which inspires, that which motivates. In fact, we see this a number of times in the Old Testament. And it's important to say that the, 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 the language, the, the, the words used both in Hebrew and in Greek for these terms have a number of different translations. It's important to know. Like for example, in our present text here, Jesus will talk about flesh, or excuse me, he'll talk about the spirit, but then he'll also talk about the wind. And those terms are actually the same terms in, in Greek. The, the Greek word pneuma can be translated breath, can be translated spirit, can be translated wind. It's this whole notion of an animating force. And the same thing in Hebrew. In fact, the Hebrew term is even more fun. It's, it's actually, if you're familiar, those of you who are have some more literary or English background, you, you've heard of the, the term onomatopoeia. And that's a way of referring to words that actually sound like their meaning. So oh, those of you who are kids, what, what sound does a cat make? We mean, it's meow. And of course, how do you spell meow? Well, it, sound, it looks how it sounds, so to speak. You pronounce it the way that it's heard, meow. And it's the same way with the, the Hebrew word for spirit. Are you ready? It's the word ruach. It's this notion of wind passing, ruach. Right? This idea of, uh, of, of, of sort of a wind or a, 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 a breeze passing by. And this term in, in Hebrew can mean can be translated spirit, it can be translated wind, it can be translated breath. And again, it's the notion of inspiration, of animation. And by contrast, in, in, in Greek, the term sarx has to do with flesh, of lifelessness, of, in, of that which is inanimate. 
Um, so in the Old Testament, we see these terms used in some really, some really sort of really fun and, and informative ways. For example, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, the book of Exodus, right, the story of Israelites being in bondage under Pharaoh, and there's a scene in chapter 6 where the Pharaoh has announced that, um, that they, they, they cannot be released. I mean, Moses has gone and said, let, me, let my people go. Moses, the Pharaoh has said no. And then he says, not only that, but guess what? I'm going to make life harder for you. You need to make bricks without straw. And, uh, and then God comes to Moses and gives Moses an encouraging word saying, look, don't worry about Pharaoh. I got this all under control. I just go and tell the Israelites that they will be delivered. And Moses does. He goes and tells the Israelites this, but we read in chapter 6, it says, the Israelites did not listen to Moses. And the English translation rightly says, because of their discouragement. They're just so discouraged. What do you mean bricks without straw and we're scared? And they just, they just didn't hear Moses' encouraging words because they were so discouraged. The, the Hebrew text, listen to this. It says, are you here for this? It says, ruach. It says, because of their shortness of wind. They didn't listen because of their shortness of breath. That is to say that they had no, they weren't motivated. There was no wind in them. There was no animating force and they were discouraged. We might say that they had had the wind knocked out of them, to use an English way of, uh, way of speaking. If you're familiar with the story of King Solomon, there's a point in the story of King Solomon when he, there he is in his court with all his splendor and who visits him? It's the queen from the south or the queen of Sheba. And when she beholds the splendor of all his court, we read in chapter 10 of verse 5 of 1 Kings, it says that she was overwhelmed, which, which in Hebrew is it's actually literally, there was no longer any breath in her. Right? When you're surprised, when you see somebody, what happens when you're surprised? You go, oh. right? There's no more wind, there's no more breath, there's a sense of, we would say in English, when she saw, every, when she saw the splendor of Solomon's court, her breath was taken away, right? We use that, that, English, that uh, English idiom. So in the Bible, God's spirit, this is important, God's spirit is the one who executes the divine will. The Father makes decisions, and the Holy Spirit gets it done. We know this from Genesis 1, where we see God creating all, all the earth, and when he speaks, the Holy Spirit is there waiting, waiting for the divine decree, waiting for him to speak. And once the Father speaks, the Holy Spirit moves into action and actually gets it done. So again, the Spirit is the animating force, the one who executes the divine will. He gives life to all. So again, this morning, I want us to see that life and breath whether every day or eternal is a gift, not a given, and then we're gone. Okay? So let's give until we're gone. I want to look at, the, look at chapter 3 here, given what I've said about the meaning of spirit and wind. And let's look at verses 3 and 4. We read in verse 3, it says, Jesus replies to Nicodemus, this Pharisee, he comes to Jesus at night. He's, he's embarrassed, so to speak. He doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. He doesn't want to be canceled by his fellow, um, his fellow uh, Pharisees, etc. So he goes under the cover of night because he wants to interact with Jesus. He's curious. And uh, he speaks to Jesus and he says, look, I, we know that some, you are from God. You have to be a teacher who's from God because no one could do the things that you do. You do these signs and these signs, are, these miracles aren't just cool things. They're signs that point, that's what signs do. They point to something. They point to your authority. They point to the fact that you have a message. And Jesus responds very strongly. 
Okay, he goes, this is, this is not just some non-Christian, this is not just some Joe Schmo, Joe Sixpack in the Pew, Jew. No, this is actually the, the, a teacher of Israel. This is someone who should know, who's a leader. And Jesus says in verse 3, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's amazing words. And Nicodemus says, wait a minute. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, Jesus is saying here that life, he's using the analogy, the metaphor of birthing, of of childbirth, of labor and delivery, to communicate the idea that when we come into life, our everyday lives, that we had absolutely nothing to do with it. We were complete, as every mother here can attest, the child in no way contributed right, to their arrival into this world. They were completely passive. That our presence in the world from day one is something that we had absolutely nothing to do with. It's a gift. And that is true not only physically, not only of our everyday lives, but it's true of our spiritual life. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. That in fact, if we are to be, if we are to see the kingdom, if we are to enter the kingdom of God, if we are to participate in his reign of life and peace and welcome, that we indeed must be born again, that we must go through a process of which we have no contribution whatsoever. And of course, uh, Nicodemus wrestles with this idea, but it doesn't change the fact that, that that is true of both everyday life and eternal life, that it is a gift. It's a very humbling thing. Now look in verse 5. True life is given through his purifying, his purification and his power. Look at this, this notion. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. What does that mean? Well, again, the Old Testament uh, verbiage, or Old Testament imagery, especially from Ezekiel, the notion of water, as we've talked about several weeks ago, the notion of water is this notion of what? of cleansing. We use water to cleanse. And of course, the spirit here is this notion of empowerment, of enabling, of animating. He says, you must be born not only in two different ways, to be cleansed of all our filth, to be cleansed of all our dirtiness, to be cleansed of all our moral filth, but also we must not only be cleansed, we must be, if you will, capacitated. We must be enabled. We must be empowered. He continues in verse 6 saying that really otherwise, other, other than this being born again, there is no possibility of change. Verse 6 says, Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus is saying, look, you can try to do all the makeover you want. You can try to change. You can try to do all of these things to improve yourself. You can go on this self-improvement plan But at the end of the day, there's actually no qualitative difference. I can remember a a friend of my brother's who uh, several years ago was, he was uh, was overweight and depressed. And one day he he decided that, you know, I've had enough of this. And uh, he decided to get on a, a workout plan and went to the gym religiously and lost a lot of weight. In fact, came to the point where he was just, you know, he was cut, he was fit. He was in great condition, looked better than he'd ever ever been before. And his depression was gone. And you know what replaces depression? 
pride. He went from being overweight and depressed to being fit and full of himself. Now, did he change? Well, yeah, maybe in a way. But did he change for the better? Was there a qualitative difference in his life? See, we can clean up. We can present ourselves. We can do all kinds of things that maybe in our own eyes or in the eyes of others might present us, make us better. But Jesus is saying, look, flesh only begets more flesh. It is the Spirit who gives birth to the Spirit. Jesus is saying life, real life, is a gift. It has to be given to something that we have to ask for. Life is a gift that is given, and then it's gone. It's gone. Now, where do I get this idea that it's gone? Jesus doesn't emphasize this so much, but he speaks in a second here of wind, and we'll talk about how wind comes and goes and, and just the, the way in which we have no control over it, and that's sort of a point I want to focus on. But elsewhere in the Scripture, this notion of breath, in fact, all throughout the, notion, throughout the Old Testament, this notion of breath is, is used to communicate how brief our lives are. You know, so often, especially as a young person, we think, oh, I'm going to live forever. It's going to go on forever and ever. And it's amazing as you get older, as those of you know, that the, how quickly time starts to go by. And again and again, especially in the Psalms, we hear these words that our lives are but a breath. Every moment of every day, when you are in your car, when you are at home, when you are eating, when you are in the shower, you're breathing. And when you stop for a moment, you realize that my life is a breath. You will be in junior high once. You'll be in high school once, hopefully. You'll be in college once, maybe. You'll, you'll be in your 20s once. You'll be in your 30s once and your 40s once. You will never get a chance to do any of that ever again. It'll be gone before you know it. Life is a gift and then it's gone, it's a breath. Every time you breathe, you leave here, you're breathing, maybe you go for a run, you're breathing harder, you stop, you'll recognize that breath and you think, wow, every breath that I have is a gift from God. And then I'm gone, I'm gone. I can't change myself, that breath is a gift, that life is a gift, it's brought to me, it's given to me. Life is a gift and then it's gone. When I was living in Puerto Rico, I ran into, I met a, a really neat guy, was an older fella, probably uh, late 60s, early 70s, uh, very wealthy, very well-to-do, and he said to me, he said, you know, Bruce, all my friends and I, we have spent our lives being successful, and they were, they were incredibly successful. My friend was worth tens of millions of dollars. He said, we spent our lives being successful and making money, and he says, now either, either we or our spouses are dying. He was very blunt. And he said, now we're dying. And, and he said, and it's like, what's, what was the point of it all? Life is a gift. And then we're gone. So this is key. Listen to me. We cannot change ourselves on our own. And we can't change others. And what does that mean? It means that we ask for life. Have you asked the one who is your creator, the one who gives you life and breath every single day, have you asked him 
for eternal life? Have you thanked him for the life and breath that we have every single day? Now, I want to ask this question. Well, actually, let me turn to verses 7 and 8 before we do. Jesus says here in verses 7, he emphasizes the notion of the, of the absolute authority and independence of the, of the Holy Spirit's work. Verse 7, he says, You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Listen to this, verse nine, verse 8. The wind blows. Understand the wind. is the, the word wind is the same as the word spirit, pneuma. Right? He says, you must be born of the pneuma. You must be born of the spirit. Numa gives birth to Numa. Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Then in verse 8, he says, The Numa blows wherever it pleases. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit. The wind blows wherever it, wherever, wherever it pleases. Not where you please, not where I please. The Holy Spirit blows where he pleases. He goes where he wants to go. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying that God's Spirit is sovereign, that He is the Lord of life, and that He gives life to whomever He desires. And He's saying to Nicodemus, all you've got to do is ask. But don't think that somehow you're in. You're Israel's teacher, you got all these credentials. Don't just think that somehow you go to church every day. Don't just think that because you know the language, you know the book, you know what to say, you know the right words. Don't just think that somehow you're in. No, there needs to be an asking. There needs to be a recognition that, you know what, for all my own abilities, for all that I have, there's nothing I've got to offer. There's nothing that I can do to contribute to new life, to new birth. I have about as much say in the second birth as I did in my first birth. And what I think is so amazing about Jesus' words here and his metaphor of wind, I don't know if you get a chance, but maybe this summer or this fall, I, had, I haven't read the whole book. I've only read a chapter from the book. But there's a book by a, a woman. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Her last name is French, I think. I don't know how to pronounce it. It looks like Jeanne. Her name looks like Jeanne de Bleu, or de Blee. And she writes, she wrote a, wrote a book called Wind, How the Flow of Air Has Shaped Life, Myth, and Land. And one of the chapters is all about, it's, you know, it's sort of covering at a very basic popular level the science of the jet streams. And it basically shows how what seems so random and unpredictable and chaotic to us, this thing called a wind that we can't control, that blows, as Jesus says, it blows you know, wherever it pleases. You, you hear it sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. I mean, what, a, what a just crazy situation. And so often that's how we think of the Holy Spirit, right? You look at the church, you look at the situation, what is going on? What, how, you can't see the, the rhyme, the reason of how oh, God is at work in our lives and in other people's lives. And yet in this chapter, it's so beautiful. She says, you know, what, what we think to the naked eye is chaos. The wind is just kind of doing whatever it wants to do. She shows how the jet streams and how the various winds are governing and maintaining life throughout the whole planet. It's incredible. It's amazing how these winds are spreading seeds. They're doing all kinds of life-giving things. What seems to us is completely random and completely undiscernible that actually God, through the wind, is actually sustaining life every single day on his planet. And he's doing the same not only with the wind. He's doing it with his Holy Spirit. So my question for you is this. Again, have you asked for the spirit of life? to enter. Do you believe that apart from his Holy Spirit, you are flesh, you are inert, you are lifeless? You cannot love 
You cannot give. You cannot sacrifice. You cannot do the things that are truly beautiful apart from his Holy Spirit. Now let me ask you, I'm going to ask this question. What are the signs of the Holy Spirit? What are the signs of God's Spirit, the presence of his Spirit in our life? If I could boil it down to a single word, it would be this. We know God's Spirit is in our lives because something called conviction. Conviction. And I mean that in two ways. Conviction in the sense of recognizing that we have done wrong, being convicted of sin, being convicted of the ways that we have actually been a massive part of the problem, the ways that we have contributed, we have been on the wrong team. That notion of the Spirit coming into our lives, awakening us to the reality of shame and guilt, the ways that we have hurt others, that is the first and foremost sign of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because I'll tell you what, as you know, as you see it in other people, people don't do that of their own accord. They just don't. Right? How many of us have parents, siblings, whom we would love to hear the words, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what I did to you. We would love to hear them own and admit something, but that will, they will never do it because they're too proud. And how many of us know the same thing? We look and we know that we have wronged someone and we're never, we will never own it because we're too proud, because it's impossible, because flesh gives birth. The flesh does not confess. Flesh does not become weak. Flesh pretends to be this thing of just, oh, look at me go, and it lives a lie. The first sign of the Holy Spirit is conviction. Conviction of sin. But it's not just conviction of sin. It's conviction in the sense of confidence. Conviction in the sense of, ah, this is why I believe, and I will stand here all by myself, and I will do the right thing. Conviction is a confidence in the face of a world that is ready to cancel me and say, I'm going to stand with Jesus Christ. I'm going to stand for love. I'm going to stand for what is just. I'm going to stand for what is right. I don't care if you crucify me. They crucified my Lord. What is the sign of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Conviction. A conviction that leads to confession. A confession or a conviction that leads to radical course correction. In Luke 3, John the Baptist is preaching, and God's people, or the people of God, are convicted. You know what they say? They say, what should we do? When's the last time you asked that? Of Scripture. Of Jesus. So busy doing this, this, and this. Got this thing going on, this thing going on. When's the last time you actually said, what, what should I do? Man, i so wrong. So selfish. And you seek counsel. That's, that's really the second beautiful sign of the Spirit. Is that not only are you convicted, but you, you, you crave counsel. You crave correction. You're correctable. People can actually come in and say, oh, wait, you know what, time out. Actually, yeah, I'm not sure this is so good. And you're like, thank you so much. Thank you. I was totally blind to that. I, I need that. You actually invite counsel into your life. You find brothers and sisters in the Lord who you know, who are loved. You're going to love you enough to say, hey, guess what? See that? You got something, you know, like in your dinner and like you're eating along and something and someone's in your teeth and everyone knows it except for you. You're the real friend, someone who pulls you aside. Hey, you got some, something right there in your teeth, right? They're actually honestly to tell you that you have problems. And you want that. You receive that because you have God's spirit in you. You have conviction, but you also have a craving for counsel, a craving for correction. And finally, God's spirit comes 
Whereas the sign of the Spirit is when we have, listen to this, a carefree concern for others. A carefree concern for others. We're like, you know, I don't care about myself. I just care about them. And in fact, it's a carefree concern that is willing to come at great cost. In Philippians 1, Paul, just so beautiful, Philippians 1, Paul demonstrates this. He said, he talks about his joy. He said, Paul, here's a man writing from prison. He says, listen to these words. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he says, I will in no way be ashamed. I'm not going to be ashamed of being in prison. He says, my only desire is that whether by life or by death, Christ would be exalted in me. He says, for to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that is the sign of the Holy Spirit. Ah, dying, not a, not a problem. See how carefree Paul is? Unafraid. He says, all I want to do, he says, all I want to do is care for you, Philippians. He says, I could die now. In fact, I could probably say something in my trial that would get me killed. But I'm actually going to sort of, I'm going I'm to navigate things and try to get out of prison. Why? So I can come back to you, Philippians, and love you and encourage you. He says, I'd rather be, he says, I'd rather, listen, he says, I'd rather be dead. I'd rather be with Christ, which is better by far. That's what Paul's attitude is. Paul has no fear of death. He's not trying to prolong his every breath here on the earth because he knows, hey, look, this world, just frankly, it just sucks. But I'm here for you. I'm here to give. I'm here to recognize that my role is to give until I'm gone. So let me just, let me just, let me just close with this, really a, really a quotation from Frederick Douglass. I'm sure many of you know who Frederick Douglass was. He lived in the mid-19th century. He was actually born a slave. He escaped and he became a, a leader in the abolitionist movement and, and, in the, uh, and in the Republican Party that followed uh, after the Civil War. He was quite the, quite the, uh, quite the amazing orator. And, uh, and he shares in his autobiography, he shares his story of conversion. And especially those of you who are kids, but all of you to listen to these words, because here is undeniable evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. When God breathes the breath of life in us, this is what happens. He was 13 years old. He says, quote, I was not more than 13 years old when in my loneliness and destitution I longed for someone to whom I could go. Someone to whom I could go as to a father and a protector the preaching of a white Methodist minister named Hansen was the means of causing me to feel that in God I had such a friend. He thought that all men, great and small, enslaved or free, were sinners in the sight of God, that they were by nature rebels against his government, and that they must repent of their sins and be reconciled to God through Christ. I cannot say that I had a very distinct notion of what was required of me, but one thing I did know well, I was wretched and had no means of making myself otherwise. 
I consulted a good old colored man named Charles Lawson, and in tones of holy affection, he told me to pray and to cast all my care upon God. This I sought to do, and though for weeks I was a poor, broken-hearted mourner traveling through doubts and fears, I finally found my burden lightened and my heart relieved. I loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, though I abhorred slavery more than ever. I saw the world in a new light, and my great concern was to have everybody converted. My desire to learn increased and especially did I want a thorough acquaintance with the contents of the Bible. What a beautiful story of a man born again, a man given the breath of life. Let me close with this. Let me ask you a few questions. Are you asking for help? Are you asking for his Holy Spirit? Jesus, listen to Jesus' promise in Luke 11. Jesus says, How many of you fathers... If your child asks you for bread, we'll give him a stone. If he asks you for a fish, we'll give him a scorpion. If you who fathers, you parents, if you who are evil know how to give good, give good gifts to your children, will he, our heavenly father, not also give his Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you ask him for his spirit, a spirit of power, a spirit of conviction, a spirit of capacity, a spirit of wisdom? Do you ask him for his Holy Spirit? So are you asking for help? Second, are you, are you ending the hubris in your life, the sense of a self-made, the sense of, hey, I do this all on my own? Are you recognizing how, gift, how all of life is a gift? In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul asks, he challenges the arrogant Corinthians. He says, what do, I have, what do you have that you do not first receive? Every morning, we should be asking that question, look in the mirror and say, what do I have that I did not first receive? I mean, everything I've got is a gift. Everything I've got. So I've got a degree. Who, how'd you get the degree? Well, I went to school. I worked hard. Well, how did you, where'd you get the work ethic? Where'd you get the money to pay for it? Who, who got you there? I mean, everything, law of life is a gift. So are we asking for help? Are we ending the hubris, the arrogance in our lives? We're recognizing all of life is a gift. And finally, listen to me soberly. Are you actually going to hell? Do you have his Holy Spirit in you. Are you born again? Jesus says so soberingly, Matthew 7, listen to these words. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not do work wonders in your name? Did I not teach and do all manner of great things in your name? And I, truly I will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. Where are you going? Jesus offers you life, abundant life, regardless of what you had. It doesn't matter anything that you have done. Isn't that amazing? It's so scandalous. He offers you life. He offers you full forgiveness, full pardon, welcome, perfect welcome, perfect wisdom, a faithfulness that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. It's offered in the call of the gospel. Will you surrender? Will you ask him? Say, look, I can't do this on my own. I need to be born again. Will you hear Jesus' words this morning? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
How humbling it is to hear that despite all our efforts, we can't change ourselves. I can't become someone different. I can't stop wanting the things I want. I can't stop fearing the things I fear. I can't stop hating the people I hate. I can't stop manipulating. I can't stop the constant self-aggrandizement, the way that I show the world, put on a mask, not just a mask for a pandemic, but a mask to show the world that I am different from who I am. Lord, I can't stop. We can't stop. Flesh just gives birth to flesh. Lord, it's just so futile. So we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit. Save us from our futility. Save us from our folly. Give us a Holy Spirit who can change us, who alone can change what we see and can change what we seek. A Holy Spirit who, when he comes into the room, moves us, gives us life and frees us from fear and frees us to love, to love at great cost, and frees us to stand with conviction in our, cl- in our classrooms, uh, Father, in our, in our workplaces, Father, in our neighborhoods, frees us to stand in the name of love, to stand in the name of justice, to stand and do what is right, to stand before a world that rejected him and let that world reject us as well. Father, would you empower us? Would you make Good Shepherd a place filled with persons who are passionate for the kingdom of God, who are so ready to confess their sins, to tell the world that they are fools, to tell the world that they have failed again and again and again. But yet, Christians who are passionate for the wisdom of the word, longing to know, we want to listen, to hear your word. We are hanging on every word you say. Father, hear us. We're asking you, we're begging you, send your Holy Spirit, the spirit of the obedient, the spirit of the crucified, the spirit of the resurrected, the reigning, the returning Lord Jesus Christ into our lives. For we pray in his mighty and merciful name. Amen.